Hello and thank you for checking out this episode of the From the Frontline podcast. Each episode we'll be interviewing a key voice from the NHS or social care to discuss some of the key challenges and changes that impact the treatment and care we all receive. Throughout this podcast series, we'll be answering some of the big questions which face health and social care today, such as why are there massive delays in A&E, how do we beat the NHS winter crisis, and how can we make the future of digital health accessible for all. We hope that you'll finish each episode knowing a little bit more about the major NHS headlines and what needs to change if we are to deliver the best possible care for everyone in the UK. From the Frontline podcast is brought to you by Healthcoms Consulting, who are part of the PLMR group. On this episode, we're excited to be talking about emergency departments in the NHS. This is particularly in light of media reporting and media coverage around waiting times in and the challenges faced by emergency departments over the last several months. Also, we want to have a look at what the future of emergency services could and should look like in the NHS and what needs to change if we are to achieve that. We're delighted to have Dr. Adrian Boyle, incoming president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine with us today. Uh, Dr. Boyle, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Before we get started in that conversation about what the current challenges facing emergency services look like, it'd be great to get a little bit of a sense of your background and your experience in this area. Great, thank you. Uh, And thanks for having me on this. So I'm a emergency medicine doctor, I work in an emergency department somewhere in the east of England, and I also work for the Royal College. I've been, I qualified in 1994. I did um, a variety of jobs um, across the south coast, worked abroad for a little bit, and then ended up in my current place. I've been a consultant since 2005. Uh, I've been in charge of my department uh, for three years during the pandemic, and I also was in charge of quality for the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. My interests and my research interests are around emergency department crowding, but because it seems to dominate everything that we're doing at the moment. Thank you so much for being on on the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. I suppose just picking up on the point that I raised in the intro, that there has been a lot of media coverage around the challenges that are facing emergency departments at the moment. Um, Just from your view on the ground and in your your position uh, that you've mentioned, is the current crisis, for want of a better word, in emergency departments, is that an accurate representation of what the current situation is? Is that a new situation? Yeah, so we, we constantly get, oh, it's yet another A&E winter crisis, um, but we are in a considerably worse situation um, than we've been for many years. Um, and if you look at all the graphs, they look like dangerous ski slopes. Um, you know, everything is going the wrong way. And to give you, put some flesh onto that that sort of feeling, last year, um, well, um, nearly a million people waited more than 12 hours or stayed more than 12 hours in our emergency departments. If you go back two years, we're looking small tens of thousands. The system really feels like it has ground to a halt. Um, and we're really worried about it. It's much worse um, than I've seen at any point in my career. Um, it is routine for us to go into our emergency departments and see people who need to come into hospital and have been waiting over 24 hours for bed. I mean, my registrar's joke um, that 24 hours in a is not just a documentary, actually for a lot of people, it's a way of life. Yeah, well, I suppose from a policy perspective, 
it'd be easy to just say, well, the impact of COVID and it's being felt across the NHS. My guess is the roots causes of the situation that you're currently experiencing and what you've described go beyond COVID and are deeper than COVID. Where would you put the root at the current situation that you're facing? What are the causes that mean that the current situation you're facing is that much worse than the situation you described two years ago? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, at the NHS Confederation last year, the Secretary of State um, got asked, um, why are we having problems with ambulance offloads and suggested that it was mainly the fault of COVID. This is, it's not true. Um, the last time the NHS met the fire target was in 2015. Now, fire target is not a perfect measure, but it gives you an, uh, an idea. If you look at the graphs, there's a steady incremental deterioration in performance probably going back to about 2012, um, where there has been decreased performance, long, gradually incrementally increasing um, delays. And this has led to a tipping point. COVID accelerated that, there's no doubt. COVID created enormous stress um, and inflexibility and um, difficulties in the operational running of hospitals, which causes all of these problems. But this is absolutely pre-COVID. So if we look at what actually causes this, this is the long waits in emergency departments are actually highly focused on a fairly small group of patients. And these are the patients who need to be admitted to hospital. So people constantly say, people are waiting too long in emergency departments. Um, and it's all because the GPs can't see them. It's all because people are drunk and they, or they couldn't be bothered to go and see their GP or they're not doing it. And that's not true. This is about people who need to be admitted to hospital. The people who should have gone elsewhere um, or have tried to go elsewhere but ended up in emergency departments with low acuity problems, they don't cause that much problems. Yes, they wait a little bit, but they're not the people who are sitting on trolleys suffering harm as a consequence of this. And it's actually all about being able to admit people, the high acuity patients, the people who need to be in hospital, and there just aren't enough beds. Now, if you look at international comparisons, the UK has the least number of beds of almost any European country. And the distribution of beds around the country is incredibly haphazard and chaotic. Scotland has a few more beds. The Northeast has a few more beds. The Southeast, per beds per thousand population, is the lowest. So the way that we've organized our healthcare system with the least number of beds means that it is inevitable we get full emergency problems. We're running hospitals very, very full. Optimal um, capacity for a hospital, optimal occupancy is about 85%. Now, that sounds slightly odd, and I probably ought to explain what we mean by occupancy. Occupancy is the number of patients in beds over the number of available beds at midnight. Now, there's an awful lot of activity that goes on during the day that doesn't actually involve those. We know from hard experience that once you go over 85%, Infection control becomes problematic, wards become crowded, elective operations get cancelled, emergency departments become full, and ambulances are unable to hand over their patients. So fundamentally, the problem that's causing this is lack of inpatient capacity within our hospitals. That's caused by two main things, not enough beds in the first place, and then behind that, not enough social care to get the patients out of hospitals that uh, we use. And I, everyone goes, it's, if you talk to people who work in social care, they'll say, oh, it's 
because the hospitals aren't efficient enough. And you can talk to people in hospitals say it's because social care isn't responsive enough. It's actually both. It's a complex multifactorial problem, but both have a problem, uh, a part of the problem. Currently, we think there's about 10,000 patients in England in hospitals who could be discharged if the social care was able to meet their needs. And these aren't people who need to go necessarily into residential care, but they just need a bit of extra help, what's called domiciliary care, help, help for them to be at home. So the waste of this and keeping patients who need a bit of social care in hospital is really bad for them. They decondition, they get depressed, they get institutionalized. It's just a miserable experience all around. And it's just also, it's a really inexpensive way to make people um, worse, you know, People do better when they're in their own homes. And we just need to be able to use our hospital beds in the way they're supposed to be used. With that in mind, and there's been, um, I suppose just recently in sort of political discourse, there has been quite a fair bit of focus on discharge and prioritised funding for discharge from acute settings into social care. If a politician was to turn around to you and say, we're going to dedicate funding towards increasing the number of beds that are in our emergency departments, we want to raise the level so that where there are currently less beds than there should be, we're increasing that number. We want to compete better with our European counterparts in terms of the number of beds we have. Is that going to go enough to solve the problem? So it's not beds within our emergency departments. It's actually beds within within our whole hospitals. You've got to think about this as a whole system. Um, Simon Stevens, when he was the previous chief executive of the NHS prior to the pandemic, said, we've cut too many beds too quickly. We have cut beds faster than almost any other European country over the last five years. Um, the if you are modelling, suggests that if you actually want to return hospitals to 85% occupancy, Currently, we're running into about 92 to 95% occupancy. If you want to try and get down to 85%, you need probably 13,000 extra beds. NHS England this winter, with their winter plan, suggested that we need 7,000 extra beds. But the devil is in the detail. So a lot of those are going to be virtual wards, or as I know them, not actually beds. Um, and that's probably not going to make much difference. And they possibly what we're going to see is this game is going to be probably about 2000 beds. It's not going to work. We know we're going to have a tough winter because our hospitals are going to be full. Um, you know, there are, when this winter plan came out, there were squawks on other sides. And I appreciate the politicians are stuck in a sort of can't win situation about where are you going to find the staff to do this? Because A, anything you want to do to try and increase capacity is not just building a bed with four legs and a pillow. It's actually about having staff to make sure you know nursing staff, you need doctors, you need pharmacists, porters, cleaners, housekeeping, whole caboodle. You've touched on it briefly in terms of the impact that these waiting times have and these capacity challenges have. It's important, I think, for our listeners to get a sense of the human impact of waiting times. From your experience, what does that look like? What are what impact are these 12, 24-hour waiting times happening? Long waits are bad for people. I think we all get frustrated if we have a four-hour wait for a flight or we have a we get stuck in a queue outside uh, Dover waiting to get on a ferry. We know from published research evidence that long stays in emergency departments 
beyond about six hours, hours start becoming harmful to patients. And when I mean harmful, measurable increases in mortality. Um, and we've seen recent um, Office of National Statistics data, which suggested there's about a thousand excess deaths per week occurring in the UK at the moment. Sorry, occurring in England at the moment. And a part, probably about half of that can be attributed to the collapse in the emergency care system. Delayed ambulances, long stage in emergency departments, trips and falls. On a personal experience, on a personal note, what I see is I go and see people who are, these are people who need to be admitted in hospital. We're not going to keep people there for 12 hours just to say there's nothing wrong with you and send you home. These long stay patients, they're frequently elderly. They become delirious. They're stuck in an emergency department, not getting all the care they would get because the nurses who are looking after them, the care that they can give is diluted and del delayed. And our nurses say, you can give me, um, will say to me, I can either run an emergency department or I can run a medical ward, but I can't run both. You choose. So the, the effects on our patients are bad, but also the effects on staff are not insubstantial. And the the, what this does is creates a very toxic working environment where you're constantly under pressure, people are trying to take calculated risks to try and avoid admitting people to hospitals, sometimes who really ought to be in hospital. It becomes, you feel very ineffectual. Patients can be quite aggressive towards you because they've waited such a long time. They can be very unpleasant to our nursing staff. It becomes a very unpleasant environment, and it makes it hard to keep people in the specialty. So I'm seeing lots and lots of senior nurses deciding, you know what, I'm done. I'm going to go get another job. I'm going to work somewhere else where I'm not trying to do an undoable job. That experience and that reaction to the current situation isn't just a result of COVID. I hate to say we've learned to live with COVID, uh, yeah. but COVID is just... It's an additional stress that we're all dealing with. I think the long, long waits that um, people are undergoing, you can see a difference. Now, I remember I've been here before. You know, I told you at the beginning that I trained in, I qualified in 1994. This is, situation is not dissimilar to what we were seeing um, towards the end of the 90s, the early 2000s, um, with these very long waits. And it was fixed, and it is fixable. Um, but it took a lot of political will to try and fix the problem. In terms of what that fix looks like, um, what would be your key messages? What would be your key areas of priority that you would like to communicate? The very first thing is we need to provide honest, trustworthy metrics about what we're trying to achieve. So one of the things that led to all those improvements we saw in the early 2000s was the establishment of a four-hour access standard, which everybody else knows as a four-hour target. But it was a simple target we should all aim for. It was quite a blunt tool, and it is by no means um, necessarily a perfect way of trying to do it. But at least it set clarity around the expectations. It was understood clearly by the public, managers, doctors, nurses. We all knew what we were trying to do. We were trying to shorten the length of the time, and we were given this target to aim for. We're in a situation now where it still apparently uh, is our part of our performance figures but nobody is acting on the information that it provides. And we probably need to go back to a situation where we start having a clear performance framework to enter, to aim at. Secondly, we need to make sure that the information that we use about long stays, particularly the 12 hour length of stays, is honest and trustworthy. Currently, we use something called a 12 hour DTA, decision to admit metric. And the start time for this 
is not when a patient arrives in the hospital. It's when somebody decides that they are going to admit the patient. This may happen several hours later. We would recommend that the time needs to be simple and it needs to be less gameable. People manipulate that figure for all sorts of perverse incentives. Um, and it would be much better if people provided honest data by just saying the start time is when somebody walks into an emergency department and is registered on the system. Honest, uh, meaningful metrics that actually reflect patient experience. So those are the, the first step. Good data so we understand what we're dealing with and clarity about what we're trying to deal with. The second is we do need to expand more, uh, expand our hospitals so we've got more beds. We've done all of the things around efficiency, emission avoidance. We admit very few people into, into the main hospital now who really don't need to be there. Our systems, it's very constrained, but trying to say we're going to stop people being admitted by making better choices isn't going to work. I'm very skeptical about virtual wards. Um, if somebody produces a evaluation in the year's time and says it was absolutely the thing that got us out of this pickle, I'll be delighted, but I'm very skeptical. We need to have evidence-based policy. People have lots of ideas and lots of initiatives. That's great. But until we know whether they work, we shouldn't be implementing them. We shouldn't be wasting public money on stuff on just good ideas. We need to be using public money on stuff that we know works. We also need to get all challenged the narrative that emergency departments are full of people um, who couldn't go and see their GP um, and are there because they are feckless and just chaotic users of the healthcare system. That's not true. Most of the patients I talk to try really hard not to go to emergency departments. There may be some benefit about making sure that alternative access, GPs, other hospital clinics works better, but that's not going to help me very much with all these people on trolleys waiting to be admitted. If people need to be in hospital, we need to be able to get them into hospital. I just wondered whether, um, as a note to finish on, there's lots of talk about the winter crisis and what's coming down the track. We've mentioned the situation that we're currently in. What, what's the situation going to look like in emergency departments in three months' time? Um, I, I don't know, but I'm worried. Um, we may find ourselves in the unfortunate situation of COVID and flu as the nasty bullies in the playground are ganging up together and beating us up at the same time. Um, that is a significant worry. Um, it may, may well be possible that ambulance handovers become even worse, and in some areas, ambulances won't get to people um, at all. Um, I think people who go to emergency departments are going to find that they have very long waits, often in a pretty crowded and unpleasant environment. Um, there will be lots of staff who go, I can't work with like this. I'm, expect I'm already seeing this. We're seeing staff going off, off sick, looking for alternative employment. Um, it could be extremely tough. Um, there are, I think we also need a degree of honesty from our politicians that this is, we've got to be realistic. It's going to be tough. People are going to have to wait and we are going to try and fix it. But there's absolutely no point in um, expecting some sort of magic wand to fix this immediately. This is a complex, big problem that requires significant political and managerial will and coordination. People need to take this 
really responsibly and work together to try and fix it. Dr. Adrian Boyle, thank you so much for your time uh, today. It's been a really interesting discussion. I hope it's of use to the people that are listening. Um, I hope it's given them food for thought, but also gives a real reflection of the situation on the ground, as you've described. Um, We'll be following this issue as it develops over time um, and are really grateful for your insight and taking the time this afternoon. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the From the Frontlines podcast. If you have any thoughts about our conversation or would like to get involved in a future episode, please email fromthefrontline at healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. If you'd like to chat about our work as one of the UK's top health and social care public affairs agencies, please visit our website, healthcomsconsulting.co.uk. Thanks again for listening.